everybody. Welcome back to Socialist Evolution. I'm your host, Ashley Kreiss. We are working on the ABCs of Capitalism, written by Vivek Chibbert, and today we are diving into pamphlet number two. That is going to be Capitalism and the State. In this pamphlet, there's really two main ideas that um, I'm going to give away the game and tell them to you right now, and then we'll revisit them throughout the essay. So, the two big points that I took from this essay are that left political movements cannot fully exist or be realized without the support of labor. So you can't have a left movement to secure any sort of social welfare state without a labor movement backing that. You know, the, the strength of these movements really does come from labor. So that's number one. On the other side of this power dynamic, we have capital and the state. So this shouldn't come as any shock to anybody, but capital has consolidated state power. So the state doesn't really work without the power of the capitalists. The state exists at this point to serve capital, essentially. So that's that's kind of it. for To take down that power dynamic between capital and the state, we need a strong left that has the support of the labor movement. And the reason why the left can't really exist without the labor movement is because this capital is... Our politicians are so captured by the moneyed interests in this country. The only thing that they can take down those moneyed interests is the working class. It is that labor. It's our consumption even. But we... The capitalists need laborers, as we talked about in Understanding Capital. The whole system runs because of us, you know, because of the workers. We're the ones who make the products. We're the ones who go and consume the products. So without us, the system doesn't work. So that's essentially the big two points that we're going to be focusing on today. Um, we'll revisit those many times. So let's hop to it. So the beginning of this essay really just kind of goes over what we talked about last week in understanding capitalism, essentially that capitalists control the rest of the people in living in the country just by the sheer fact that they give them the jobs and the jobs are how you make money and money is how you buy food and shelter and shelter is how you survive. So vis-a-vis -vis capitalists control the workers. Diving into what Vivek has to say, kind of working off of that, even though capital and capitalists do control the working class, democracy does, although the state in the United States, you might not feel this way, democracy does give workers a better life than just a straight up dictatorship or any sort of like authoritarian country would. You know, it's we're not serfs anymore working for a king, even though it's just, they're just words. But the standard of living is better under a democracy. So off of that, even though democracy has tamed the class bias of the state, the basic thrust of state policy is nevertheless decidedly in favor of the rich. It is still fundamentally their state. In the advanced industrial world, nowhere is this more apparent than in the United States, and never has it been clearer than over the past generation. We are living in a new gilded age in which an immense concentration of wealth has grown together with the concentration of political power. This pamphlet analyzes the sources of state bias. We need to understand why, far from counteracting the power of capital, states tend to reinforce it. We need to recognize the structural forces that bind it to capitalist interests, even though capitalist small numbers should be a disadvantage in a democratic system. And this is really the whole crux of the issue. You know, if if every vote ha carries equal weight and there are more poor people than there are rich people, why does the system still favor the wealthy? And that's because the system isn't set up. The power isn't in the voting. That's the whole game. You know, the power isn't in the voting. It's I don't have my vote doesn't have as much power as the vote of Jeff Bezos. You know maybe our our ballot vote does, vote does, but Jeff Bezos is voting with his money. You know, Jeff Bezos does have the ability to lobby 
hang out with these politicians, you know, he exerts so much more influence on the state than any of us could ever hope to do. So that's the big question. You know, if even though capitalist small numbers should be a disadvantage in a democratic system, why aren't they? And that's because they have they've consolidated power by buying off our politicians. The political theory that supports the notion that everybody has an equal voice in our society and in our system vis-a-vis -vis voting is pluralism. So pluralism holds that in a democracy, the race for votes neutralizes the power of any particular group in society. If we assume that politicians are basically interested in being elected, certainly a reasonable assumption, then they will bend to whichever group comes together to offer up the largest number of votes. So if workers can organize their votes into a cohesive block, they can exert decisive influence over politics. But not just workers, any interest group can exert power, as long as they can get its act together and prove that it can deliver votes. And then he goes in to discuss a whole host of different types of groups, religious groups, ethnic minorities, the elderly, all these potential interest groups and parties will slice and dice the voting public into whichever collection of interest groups can carry them to power. Pluralism is and has been the most influential theory of the state for quite some time. Notice that it turns on two key premises. First, no group is more important than another in the influence game. And second, the state is ex ante neutral. We have already introduced the first of these two premises when we say that any interest group can, influ can win the influence game. It amounts to saying that no group has a necessary advantage over any other. Which we all know is patently untrue. When they say that no group has any more power over another, that means no group has any less power over another, and we all know that that's not true. Which groups win depends on the skills of the group's representatives in making their case. Organizing others into a viable electoral or lobbying force, cobbling together a coalition with other groups, and of course, making a case to the wider public. All these factors go into deciding which interest groups wields influence, and the skills that go into this are generally available to anyone. Hence, no particular interest group has any advantage over any other. The second premise is also implicit in the story just told. If it is true that any interest group can potentially win the influence game, it implies that the state is also willing to be influenced by anyone. See, and that's really important. When we talk about these things, you kind of bury the lead by saying, you know, anyone can, anyone has the ability to influence the government. Truly, that does imply exactly what Vivek Chibber is saying there. That means that the government is ready and willing to be influenced by anyone. State managers, presidents, legislators, and high-level bureaucrats are open to suggestions. They listen to actors who are persuasive and, more importantly, seem to command real influence. And when I read that, I highlighted real influence because what is real influence? It's money. So they're open to suggestions from people who seem to command real influence. That means they're open to suggestions from capitalists. Pluralists describe the state as being neutral because... It is willing to be influenced by anyone. Therefore, the assumption is it doesn't have any of its own biases already set. You know, if you're willing to be influenced by anyone, that means you're neutral. It's a really interesting idea of neutrality. It's a definition of neutrality that I find a little bit difficult to believe. And if anyone tried to convince me that the state in the United States is neutral, the state as in state power, is neutral. Oh man, we would really get, we would dive deep into that one, but the state is not neutral as we know it to be. It's only the, the theory of the state is that it would be neutral. Ex ante, if anyone doesn't know what that means, it, it was in the article and I just read it a bit ago. It means that your assumptions are predicated on forecasts rather than results. So all of these assumptions that we have about what, how the state and capital are going to interact, how a government in a democracy will be run under a capitalist system. All of our 
notions that we still carry to this day in 2020, even though we've been living with this system for hundreds of years, are still based on like the theory of the idea. They're based on the forecast rather than what we've actually seen like borne out. Now, fortunately for us, most Americans aren't deep economic philosophers and they don't look at these things based on, they don't look at their life based on the theory of how capitalism works under a democratic system. So we're moving on to uh, talking about how Americans, the working populace does view America as a biased state. So this description of politics is a very comforting one, but it seems that the American public never got the memo. If experience counts for anything, ordinary citizens have come away with the conviction that the game is rigged. Rather than seeing the state as broadly responsive to ordinary people, they view it as a remote entity that can't be trusted. Public confidence in government is at an all-time low, with only 20% reporting in 2017 that it could be trusted to shepherd their interests. And that figure came from a Pew Research Center study done in May 2017. And this isn't a blip. The measure has managed to climb over 50% just once since 1972, and that was right after the 9-11 attacks. For close to two generations, the majority of the American public has felt that its government can't be trusted. And the reason isn't hard to find. In the most recent poll, 82% of Americans say that the government is basically controlled by the wealthy, while 76% say that poor people have little influence. And now you wonder why people don't vote like voter disenfranchisement in America is it's one of the worst democracies as far as getting people out to vote in the world. It's hilarious that we run around planting the seed of democracy all across the Middle East while we don't even practice democracy in our own country and Americans know it. These things too, it, it blows my mind, the, the directly contradictory thoughts that Americans can think at the same time. So even though 82% of Americans say that the government is basically controlled by the wealthy, there's still, and I don't know the statistic for this, but there's still so many people that really do think America is the greatest country in the world, Americans but 82% know that it's controlled by the wealthy. So that like disconnect in people's minds, like we know, people know. It's just something that I think people know that the state is controlled by the wealthy, but if they live with that every single day, it's just too depressing to think about. So we know it, we accept it, and then we kind of shove it down and like continue going on with our lives. So while Americans know that the government is controlled by the state, This is borne out in the tension between policies that the working class and the poor want that are in direct contradiction to the wealthy elites of this country. So when the poor have policy preferences that conflict with those of the rich, the chances that the policies of the poor are passed go down to around zero. In other words, regardless of who is in power, the only time the poor have any influence on the policy process is when wealthy people agree with them. So I, when I read this, I immediately thought of a story. When I was a junior in college, this would have been like 2013, 2014, I was interning at the Wisconsin State Capitol. And I was working in this office, I came across one day, it was some some gun control information. And I was talking with the rep that I was interning for, just kind of wondering why Wisconsin doesn't put gun control legislation in place when, and this was 2013-14, I don't know what the statistic is today, but at that time, based off of the information that I was given in the office that I worked in, 92% of Wisconsin residents supported ending the gun show, gun show loophole. So in Wisconsin, you can purchase a gun at a gun show and just from a a private seller, you don't need a background check or anything like that. 92% of Wisconsin residents wanted common sense gun control legislation. They wanted background checks in Wisconsin, actually under Scott Walker's reign of terror. He put, he took off regulations that there's a 48 hour window 
where you had to apply for a gun and then you could buy it 48 hours later. And the reason why that law was in place was because it was a it was for domestic violence. So if a husband is in a fit of rage and they want to go buy a gun and shoot their wife or their partner, they can't do that. You know, Wisconsin took that away. So now you can just go to the gun store and buy a gun like that second. And Wisconsin residents don't like that. 92% support on something as basic as ending the gun show loophole. On something as basic... Hey, Mosey. <laughs> that's, that's my cat. He wants food and pets. But on something as basic as the gun show loophole and background checks. And... Wisconsin politicians couldn't get that done. Why aren't they meeting the moment? It's because they've been bought off so thoroughly by the NRA, and that's where the power is. The power is in the lobbying of the National Rifle Association. It's not in the power of the residents. In other words, regardless of who is in power, the only time the poor have any influence on the policy process is when wealthy people agree with them. But when their demands go against the demands of wealthy people... The poor have no impact whatsoever. These findings have been a kind of wake-up call for mainstream academics who have had a stubborn attachment to a pluralist viewpoint for a long time. But for most of the public, especially working families, it is hardly news, as the polling data has shown for decades. For progressives, it is in fact common wisdom because the class bias of the state is most visible when activists try to change policy in favor of working people. Ain't that the truth? Think of how hard it has been to reach any sort of climate justice because the fossil fuel industries have so much power. Think of how hard it's been to take down like the military industrial complex. I, it, there's been like literally zero progress made on that. It's only like ballooned over with every single budget that's passed. So where do we go from there? We look towards labor. We look towards labor to come together to have a strong coalition, a multiracial coalition of workers across this country to start to force the hand of these politicians. And uh, we do see this starting. We do see this starting, and it's slow. We're going to get to it a little bit more later. But when you look at the politicians that are being taken down, there are double-digit term incumbents that are losing to progressive newcomers so the people do want to change and when we make changes on the electoral side of the equation it makes those incumbents scared you know it does make them have to now consider potentially like medicare for all in some way or at least change their rhetoric look what happened in this primary season in 2016 medicare for all was you know, radical pie in the sky, a pony for everyone, if you ask Hillary Clinton, or like chocolate milk for all the kindergartners or whatever the fuck she said on Howard Stern's show. Now in the 2020 presidential campaign, you had Pete Buttigieg with his bullshit Medicare for all who want it. Kamala Harris signed on to Bernie Sanders' Medicare for all bill. You know, Elizabeth Warren was going to do Medicare for all in like multiple stages. They weren't actually going to do Medicare for all, but they all started to adopt the rhetoric of Medicare for all. That is a small victory, but it is a victory in and of itself. The platform on the left is shifting more and more to the progressive side of the policies issues. And that's what we need. So now we have these politicians on our side, what we need to support them is a strong labor movement. All right, so carrying on with the essay, we're moving into a section titled Capitalism Undermines Democracy. So the underlying premise of the pluralist vision is that democracy neutralizes the power differences created by capitalism. Sadly, that's a false premise. The essence of the problem in modern societies is that capitalism overwhelms democracy, ensuring that the state is fundamentally biased toward capitalist interests. There are three basic channels through which this happens. One, 
the wealthy are more likely to get into office. Two, the wealthy exercise greater influence on the people in office. And three, most importantly, the state's dependence on capital ensures that politicians will favor capitalists even if the first two mechanisms fail. The promise of democracy is that anyone can run for office, and as long as they can mobilize the voters behind them, anyone can win. But the reality is that the people who tend to win come from one particular interest group, the wealthy. This holds true for all levels of government. An examination of presidential administration shows that two-thirds of the members of every cabinet in the 20th century were corporate managers, investment bankers, or corporate lawyers. This means that every cabinet in recent American history was basically run by capitalists or their chief supporters. If we turn to Congress, it isn't much better. The vast majority of House and Senate members in the U.S. are themselves from the wealthiest sections of society. In 2014, the majority of those elected to the House were millionaires, with the median net worth being just under $1 million, and that of Senate members, $2.7 million. Even if state managers aren't from the capitalist class themselves, they are typically from social and institutional milieus that orbit this class, such as high-level law firms, elite schools, and prestigious research institutions. These are people who spend their lives serving capital, even if they do not themselves own much of it. There's also a less obvious way in which class location matters. Politicians' choices aren't just shaped by where they came from, but also where they try to get to. A substantial portion of legislators use their time in office to enter the corporate community once they leave politics. So this revolving door of politicians turned lobbyists, lobbyists turned politicians, is it's really dangerous. It's one of the reasons why politicians do so much for these corporations when they are in office. And I have two people that I'd like to just kind of talk about that seem like really good examples for this. So number one, is Joe Crowley. Joe Crowley was beaten by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez back in 2018. And I'm going to read you a little bit of news from Eyes on the Ties. This is an article written by Derek Seedman from February 2019. Barely two months out of office, Joe Crowley, the former 10-term U.S. congressman who suffered a stunning defeat to Rep. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the Democratic primary for New York's 14th district last November, is now joining Squire Patton Boggs, sounds humble, one of the most powerful corporate lobbying firms in the U.S. Squire Patton Boggs is a large firm with many clients, including major corporate powerhouses from the defense, private prison, and fossil fuel industry, as well as ultra-conservative advocacy groups. So that's who Joe Crowley now serves. If this is who he serves now that he's out of office, who was he serving when he was in office? Not the people of New York's 14th, which is why he was voted out and replaced by AOC. But this is what happens. You know, even when they are voted out, he's probably making more money now as a lobbyist than he was as a, a politician. And for these people, it's all about money and power. So I'm sure Joe Crowley feels like pretty fine about the position that he's in at this point. The other person I'd like to talk about is Kelly Loeffler. That name might like perk your ears up a little bit. Kelly Loeffler was one of many U.S. senators who dumped stocks before coronavirus. There were a bunch of U.S. policymakers who used public information or information that wasn't public yet, but they they knew information before it went public. To advance their financial interests. So the type of person Kelly Loeffler is, is person number one in the wealthy are more likely to get into office. So a little bit about Kelly Loeffler and her husband. His first piece of news is coming from the Atlanta Journal Sentinel, where she lives. U.S. Senator Kelly Loeffler made $3.6 million annually at her day job and holds up to $25 million in stocks for parent company Intercontinental Exchange, according to a financial disclosure filed late Friday. Her assets include a buckhead estate called Desconte, worth up to $12 million and owned by four separate limited liability companies that Loeffler and her husband Jeff Sprecher control. 
And apparently this buck had a state is that $12 million estate. It's the largest real estate transaction that has ever happened in Atlanta. So she's obviously a representative for the people. They also own an oceanfront condo in Boca Raton, Florida, a villa in Sea Island, a private jet, and a portion of the Atlanta Dream WNBA team. However, the bulk of Loeffler and Sprecher's personal wealth is listed among hundreds of line items that represent tens of millions of dollars in investments and bonds. So a little bit further on um, the Intercontinental Exchange. This is listed as as ICE. At first when I read it, I'm like, oh my God, she's affiliated with ICE. But ICE in this context is going to mean Intercontinental Exchange. An entire career working in investor, and I'm sorry, excuse me. So this next bit of information about Kelly Loeffler is coming from Business Insider. An entire career working in investor relations and corporate communications will do that. Do that meaning help Kelly Loeffler know how to tell a story. From running both teams at the Intercontinental Exchange, one of the largest exchange operators in the world and parent company to the New York Stock Exchange, to transitioning to chief executive at Bakht, B-A-K-K-T, a digital currency startup owned by ICE, Loeffler understands the importance of strong messaging. It's a skill that proved vital in helping her husband, Jeff Sprecher, the founder and CEO of ICE and chairman of the New York Stock Exchange, grow the company from the ground up. The two have built an incredible fortune, reportedly north of $500 million, while turning the exchange operator into one of the most vital market structure players in the world. What business does this woman have being a public servant? Kelly Loeffler is in the Senate specifically to further the class interests of the wealthy elite. This is why Americans have no trust in their government, because it is set up for people like Kelly Loeffler, for people like Joe Crowley, to make as much money for themselves, which is hardly anything in comparison to the amount of money that they're making for the billionaire class. So these are the kind of people that we have in office This is what we're up against. It's not just these two people. It's the whole system that they're a part of and that they help to build and strengthen every single day. If the whole influence process is dominated by the wealthy, if they are the ones who have the state manager's ear, then instead of the lobbying process serving to counteract the personal biases of politicians, it will in fact reinforce those biases. This seems obvious, If the process is dominated by the wealthy, the lobbyists who are sent by the wealthy to lobby these politicians are going to reinforce the biases of the wealthy. And this is this is the whole thing, too. It is really a a sick cycle of consolidation of power and wealth. The more power you have the more wealth you can accrue, the more wealth you accrue, the more power you can amass. And it just, that continues. You have more power, you get more wealth. You have more wealth, you get more power. And this, we see that, that cycle go on and on until we have the worst levels of income inequality that we've seen in this country since the Great Depression. The power that lobbyists have is so immense. Like lobbyists are such a crucial part of our current political system and there are lobbyists of all kinds. You know, there's there's lobbyists that are out there working for the environment and there's lobbyists that are out there working to get to secure food stamps and things like that. But those people don't have nearly as much power. The real like when I think of lobbying in the, the negative connotation, it's the lobbying of giant corporations just simply looking to control these politicians. So in 2011, there were around 11,000 registered lobbying organizations in Washington, DC. A major study of the lobbying process found that these lobbying organizations, around 53% were exclusively devoted to representing business interests and less than 1% represented labor unions. So this is what I mean. Like, yeah, there are people out there lobbying for labor 
unions, but less than 1% of all the lobbying firms in D.C. are lobbying for labor. This is the problem. Business lobbying groups outnumber labor groups by more than 50 to 1. If we look at organizations representing recipients of means-tested social welfare programs like Medicaid or food stamps, there wasn't a single registered organization in Washington, D.C. devoted exclusively to their interests. If we look at expenditure, it is even more lopsided. In 2017, the total amount of money officially spent by registered lobbying organizations in Washington, D.C. was $3.36 billion. Of this, business accounted for around $2.6 billion while labor spent $46 million. So the ratio of business to labor spending was 56 to 1. Insanity. In the 2016 electoral cycle, a total of almost $6.5 billion was spent in the presidential and congressional elections, a bit more than $4 billion in the latter and just under $2.4 billion in the presidential race. Presidential campaigns now require war chests approaching a billion dollars. And that those figures, the $2.4 billion in the presidential race, that doesn't even take into account the amount of time that the mainstream news spent just trained, having a camera trained on Trump's empty podium, waiting for him to walk onto the stage, covering every single like word that came out of his mouth. He got so much money he got so much like political advertising for free just based off of the the chaos ratings that CNN, MSNBC, um, all those news sources were going for. <clears throat> it also really goes to show how incredible Bernie Sanders' campaign was. And, you know, Elizabeth Warren tried it, and you can't... You just can't fake it, you know? Like, you if you're going to... And she did fake it. From the very outset of her campaign, she said that she would reject corporate PAC money until the general election. So once she was in the general, she would start taking corporate PAC money. Hmm. Doesn't, it doesn't really seem like you're actually committed to that vision. It seems like a kind of ploy that you're using to make it seem like you're some sort of progressive. God, the Bernie Sanders campaign was just... It's really a heartbreaker. All right. If we turn from the total number of donors to the relative weight of their contributions, we get a different picture. The fact is that a very small number among them accounted for the vast bulk of the funds flowing into elections. In the 2016 election cycle, Half of 1% of the U.S. population, oh my God, you guys, <laughs> half of 1% of the U.S. population accounted for more than two-thirds of all the contributions made to political campaigns. 0.52% of the U.S. population accounted for 67.8% of all contributions made to political campaigns. So when they say one person, one vote, it's a half of 1%, you guys. And this 67.8, it's almost 70%. The income inequality in this country is disgusting. One of the most astonishing discoveries came from a team of researchers from the New York Times. They found that just 158 families accounted for half of all the money that had been raised by the two parties in the early stages of the 2016 election cycle, around $176 million between them. So even though small donors were the largest in number, they didn't matter that much in their economic weight. That's the same, the same holds true for like poor voters. You can, I'm just going to read this sentence again with that perspective. So even though... Poor voters were the largest in number. They didn't matter that much in their economic weight because small donors are the same thing as poor voters. It was large donors who really pushed the needle. The flow of money into elections was and continues to be controlled by the capitalist class, the people who are economically in the top 1% of the population. This creates a very specific challenge for candidates. 
They have to be the kind of candidate capitalists would want to help out. If they aren't, then the money will flow to someone else, someone who capitalists think will better promote their interests. And this is all kind of a part of it for politicians. You know, they might start out with good intentions, but it all becomes about playing the game and getting the money. And if they don't get the money, then they can't do anything. And this is the justification for taking the money is if they don't take it, someone else will. And that other person who might get the money, maybe they don't want to do good. And that's how these politicians and these candidates are all strong-armed by the money. I need the money. And, but once they start taking the money, the whole policy platform goes out the window. Pete Buttigieg started his campaign running as a progressive. I mean, he wrote, he wrote a paper about Bernie Sanders and how like his political morality was made him like the best politician in, in Washington. I, I'm paraphrasing, but basically how he was the only moral politician in D.C. because he didn't take that money. And if you look at what happened to Pete Buttigieg's campaign over the course of that year, it's it's sad. It's really, truly, you see how the power of money can influence a person. Not that Pete Buttigieg was an amazing politician or anything, because if you look at his record in South Bend, it was abysmal. I mean, racial, like policing, and there's it's way too much to even get into right now. But, man, Pete Buttigieg really corrupted, so easily corrupted by the money. I used to think that when he got home at the end of a a long day of campaigning, you know, he'd undo his tie and grab a cold beer from the fridge, unzip his skin suit, and just emerge as like a fanged worm that he really is just looking for that money. No guiding moral compass whatsoever. And unfortunately, too, the kind of person that becomes a politician is the kind of person who is going to be corrupted by the money. The way the system is set up, it attracts people that are hungry for power and hungry for, for wealth. So, in the mainstream view, a rational politician will align her policies with what the public wants because public opinion will determine who wins in elections. According to that view, politicians' priorities will have to line up with the priorities of the general public. But this overlooks the impact of the competition for donors. The scramble for campaign finance forces candidates to place moneyed opinion over the priorities of the general public. They are compelled to align their policy agenda to the donor's agenda because if they don't, they effectively count themselves out of the electoral competition. As a result, elite opinion and the general public opinion play different roles in the political process. Elite opinion is what candidates follow and prioritize, while general public opinion is something they seek to manage. In other words, elite opinion drives the candidate's priorities, while mass opinion plays a more passive role as a constraint which they try to negotiate. So the system isn't set up to please us. The system is set up for us to just kind of nag in the background sometimes to get the things that we want. Now, managing public opinion is not the same thing as ignoring it. What it entails is a dual strategy, depending on how it aligns with capitalist interests. First, where it doesn't clash with what capitalists want, politicians are happy to take it seriously, even pander to it. The best example here is non-economic issues like religious conflicts or social issues like sexual identity. These are often allowed to move to center stage because however they are resolved, they won't really touch the donor's economic interests. In fact, they are very useful as political lightning rods because letting them rise to the top of the agenda allows the policies closer to class interests to be decided backstage in negotiations between capital and state managers. This literally just happened, and it's continuing to happen. I got a news alert this morning. The Supreme Court is making a lot of rulings right now, and they've ruled in favor of LGBTQ civil rights they just ruled in favor of a woman's right to choose so we have a social issue like sexual identity and a non-economic issue like religious conflicts so and those are good don't get me wrong like those are good rulings and we need those rulings but they keep coupling these rulings so the lgbtq plus 
civil rights ruling was coupled with a 72 passage of a 72 ruling that allows a pipeline, a 600 mile pipeline to be built underneath the Appalachian Trail. This morning when the ruling in favor of a woman's right to choose was passed, it was coupled with a ruling that has neutered the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And I haven't been able to dive into those too much yet because I'm recording this and it's just two breaking news alerts that I saw on my phone. But this is literally what Vivek Chibber is detailing. They'll give us the social issues at the same time as they take away our consumer protections. They'll give us the things that don't affect capital interests, and that's how they will placate the masses. And that's not, to, we need all of these rulings to go in our favor. I Don't get me wrong. It's, it is huge that they ruled in favor of a woman's right to choose. I mean, that would have been completely devastating. But this is the thing too, two devastating rulings and the people will uprise. They don't want the people to uprise. So there's always going to be, at least the last two weeks with these rulings, there really has been like a balance. Like, you know, here's a bad thing, but also a good thing. Here's a good thing, but also a terrible thing that we're ruling on. Second, in cases where public opinion does in fact clash with donor interests, it has to be neutralized in some way. The most typical is either deflecting public demands into policies less threatening to elites or by appealing to pragmatism. Pragmatism, that's not pragmatic. This word, look out for this word. If you see someone arguing that something is more pragmatic, they are talking to corporate interests. Like if they're using the word pragmatism, they're talking to their donors. And we see this so much with Medicare for all. You know, it's not pragmatic, it's not realistic. It's pie in the sky, um, and it's not. I mean, we see every other like developed country has found a way to give some sort of health care to all of their people, whether it is a nationalized system, whether it is a single-payer system, whether it is a private system like they have in France. It, France it's just subject to, to actual regulations that make it functional, but we don't do that here. Pluralism holds that the state and its managers are not biased toward any particular section of society. I've, and even if they are, they have to bend to public opinion because they will be punished if they ignore it. What we have seen is that even if state managers take their cues from whoever wins in the influence game, they will still end up catering to the wealthy. In other words, even if they are neutral in their outlook, even if they aren't personally biased or are willing to ignore their biases, the state will still favor capitalists over the poor because capitalists' greater wealth gives them an enormous advantage over every other pressure group. Far from neutralizing politicians' class biases, the political process ends up reinforcing them. And this is the, this is the name of the game. It's power reinforces wealth, and that wealth reinforces the power that it holds, and that power reinforces the wealth, and it goes on and on. One of the reasons why the state needs to be so closely tied to the capitalists is because the state doesn't own any of its own means of production. And that means that it needs to get those means of production. It needs to get some sort of like money elsewhere. And this is of critical importance. Like any institution that endures over time, it needs a steady stream of revenue to fund its operations. It has to pay for the civil servants that it employs purchase the supplies it uses in its daily activities, etc. All this is paid out of the state budget, but the budget doesn't magically create its own funds. They have to come from somewhere. And since the state doesn't seem to own its own productive, or sorry, and since the state doesn't own its own productive assets, they have to be acquired from other sources. The main such source is taxation. State revenues come primarily from its taxing of the general public. These taxes are either levied directly on personal or corporate income or as various indirect charges like sales tax, excise tax, and value-added tax. So one of the, since the state taxes to get its, to make its revenue, one of the things that the powerful elites do is make sure that they're not taxed. Like this is the whole thing. You see it 
with the tax cuts, you see it with like rewriting the tax code altogether. You know, it's you see it with subsidies, but the way corporations have rigged the, the tax game is the reason why they are one of the reasons why they are so powerful. I guess it's not just taxes that save them money. It's the fact that they also can underpay their workers. They don't have to offer benefits. They, you know, gig economy jobs don't have to offer benefits or even, you know, hours. All of that money has allowed these corporations to lobby politicians to make, to not only not tax them, but to make them, to allow these corporations to treat their workers as poorly as possible in the interest of making as much money as they can. And then with all the money that they've made, they lobby the politicians to cut their taxes once again. This cycle, it's an evil, terrible cycle, and it, it perpetuates itself again and again and each time the site the circle turns it gets it gets worse policymakers understand that their success in office fundamentally depends on the health of the economy if people are losing jobs they will typically vote the ruling party out of office well let's hope that that holds true with our current president so real power is in the economy we all know this i mean the economy is how all of us make it's not just how the corporations make money but the economy is how all of us make our livelihoods and how we all survive you know if the economy's bad people are out of work and they're struggling and they're you know teetering on the verge of homelessness there is a very important implication of the preceding argument it suggests that in capitalism real power doesn't reside in the state it resides in the economy this means in turn that to achieve governmental office is not the same as having real power. I find this really interesting because I do think that there's a lot of politicians out there who think that just because they're a politician that they have some sort of power and they don't. Like the politicians also are minions. This is the thing, you know, people, all these different groups of people don't view themselves as minions, but the politicians are also just minions for the corporations and, and they're cheap. They get bought off for sometimes like five hundred, a thousand dollars, and I know that that's just from like one donor, and they can collect more money. They get all those bigger donations, and that's how they're like bought off. But a thousand dollars to destroy the environment, like a thousand dollars from an energy company to like destroy the the climate, it just it doesn't seem like worth it to me. One might say there is a big difference between holding office and having power. Time and time again, we have seen left-wing parties make grand promises, get elected into office, and within a short time, they betray their voters. <clears throat> Obama. Having promised ambitious programs of social reform, they end up delivering little of it, or worse. They impose even harsher measures of economic austerity than conservative parties might do. This happens because governments, even the most radical ones, can be brought to their knees by capital without ever firing a gun. All that capital has to do is slow down the tempo of economic activity, slow down the pace of investment, and political leaders have little choice but to change their priorities so that placating investors pushes every other priority off the table. Huh. It almost seems dysfunctional. We should begin by noting that the preceding analysis doesn't imply that the state will never pass progressive reforms, but that it won't do so if left to its own. And that's where we come in. A mobilized labor, labor movement can force a choice on employers. Agree to allow more progressive social policy or face the prospect of ongoing disruption of production and hence of profit making. We see what's going on with coronavirus. Our government and these corporations, which are one and the same, are forcing us to go out and die for capitalism. We can't, they're not giving us any sort of stimulus. We got the one $1,200 stimulus check, but at the end of the day, they're not giving us any additional money because they're really truly forcing people to go out and die for capitalism. And unfortunately, some people are like way too willing and ready to do that. This is also why if we go back to my first episode and one of the things that I hold, a theory that I hold like most dear, our power lies in our consumption. You know, it says that 
A mobilized labor movement can force a choice on employers, agree to allow more progressive social policy, or face the prospect of ongoing disruption of production and hence of profit-making. The profit-making comes when we buy the product. If we don't buy the product, they don't make the profits. So even if people feel as though they don't have the power to say, I'm not going to work, you do have the power to say, I'm not going to consume. And an easy place, even if you can't just say like, okay, I'm not going to consume anymore, like... That's that, because we all have grown up under a capitalist system. We've all been conditioned to be consumers and to want these things. And it is an addiction. I understand that. It is really hard for people to not buy things because we think that if we buy something that we like, it's going to make us happy. That's why we do it. Like at the end of the day, why we buy the things that we don't need is because we feel they're going to bring us some sort of some sort of joy. It doesn't bring us joy if it does bring us joy that the joy is very fleeting but just start by like not shopping on amazon there's other bookstores that you can shop online if you want to buy a book or something like that there's like, there's other places that you can find all of these things that you would buy on amazon yeah it might not be free shipping and yeah it might not be as convenient but it's only convenient because amazon is forcing their workers to work in grueling warehouse conditions. I mean, we get we we as a society reap the benefits of Amazon's like convenience and being a little bit cheaper or whatever it might be because Amazon abuses its workers. Like that convenience just doesn't come out of nowhere. Amazon's not just like some great company that has some like really wholesome way of figuring out how to sell things for a cheaper price. It's because they're abusing their workers. Like that's where the savings comes from. So when you're getting that that item for you know maybe six dollars less than you would find it on another site, is that six dollars worth knowing that an elderly person who lost their home in the Great Recession and is now working temp work at Amazon in some warehouse is out there pounding the pavement in an Amazon warehouse? Like it's just it's not worth it. So. Try to curtail your consumption in ways that you can figure out, you know, cut off, cut off Amazon. Look up where the grocery stores in your area, where they donate their money and try to figure out which grocery stores, you know, don't donate to Republican campaigns and things like that. There are ways that you can be a more conscious consumer. And, you know, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, blah, blah, blah. You can do better, you know, just because you can't be like perfect consumer under capitalism doesn't mean, you know, you just fuck it. <laughs> then I'm not going to care whatsoever. Like you can be better and stopping supporting Amazon is a really good place to start. So coming to a close here, you know, towards the end as of the essay, Vivek Tripper really does start talking again about how we need political movements and left political movements and labor to come together if we're ever going to affect real change. And we saw this happen in Europe in the 1930s. After World War II, they put in a really expansive social welfare state. And although it is being dismantled, you look at what's happening to the NHS in the UK right now, and that's just one example. It's being dismantled, but it was so much more solid than any of the you know social welfare policies put in place in the united states our social welfare state is like almost essentially non-existent but in europe they did have a great social welfare program in the 1930s and that's because they had labor parties and labor movements working together to pass that legislation the state in capitalism is not and cannot be politically neutral you know, I think that's something that we all probably knew, like coming into this essay, but it's just reinforced by what we've seen play out through history, but also, I mean, the statistics that we've seen, you know, how much money is actually going in to politics and where that money is coming from. You know, it's coming from most of it that that statistic was, you know, 0.52%. So just think about like what the top 1% is donating, you know. 0.52% is donating 67.8% of the money to to these politicians. What's the top 1% donating? Rather, the very structure of capitalism 
ensures that the state will always be strongly biased towards the holders of wealth and capitalism. This bias built into the very structure of the state carries a very important political implication. Unless some countervailing force is present, government in a capitalist country will tend to reinforce the existing inequalities rather than try to reduce them. It will protect power and privilege rather than try to neutralize it, and it will place obstacles in the way of social reform instead of easing its path. This means that if state power is to be harnessed to progressive ends, it will require a countervailing force to the power of capitalism. The most important such force is the working class because of its location in the very heart of the system. But we might also ask, does this mean that short of a mobilized labor movement, nothing can move the state in a more progressive direction? What about other forms of pressure, mass movements that are large, but in which labor might not be a central actor? Think of the BLM movement right now to defund the police. Although, even though labor might not be like the central actor, I was at a protest in Oakland a couple of weeks ago that was put on by black labor um, unions in, in Oakland, in the Bay Area. And it was amazing. And there were thousands of people there. And it was just so strongly focused on on labor and creating a multi-racial working class coalition. And that is what I believe so strongly in my heart is how we make progress in this country. You know, this is an important question because in the recent past, we've seen quite significant mobilizations around electoral campaigns. The Bernie Sanders phenomenon in the US and Jeremy Corbyn in Britain. These generated enormous enthusiasm and unleashed a great deal of energy, which wasn't just confined to the narrow electoral arena. The answer is that these mobilizations do in fact have great potential in two ways. The first is that even though they are not labor-based, they have to be reckoned with by political elites because they can impose costs. They can shake up the complacency of policymakers who now have to worry about electoral challenges more than they would otherwise. And yeah, they sure do. Like what just happened to Elliot Engel. 32 years in Congress and he was knocked off by Jamal Bowman, a young progressive in New York. He's a middle school principal. He's a community man in the Bronx. And uh, it's beautiful to see when these incumbents are knocked off. Um, I'm really trying to put together a phone bank for Shahid Buttar. It's kind of difficult right now because I'll get into that later. Um, But once I figure out how to phone bank for him, I'm going to put out a little phone banking thing. He could knock off Nancy Pelosi. You have Charles Booker running in Kentucky who could knock off Mitch McConnell. So we are actually seeing progressives challenging these powerful incumbents and that's so important and a huge part of that is because of the bernie sanders movement there's people who want to just yeah bernie is supporting joe biden and we don't like that and he's not perfect and he's not maybe as radical as we would like him to be all those things are true but that doesn't mean that what he has done for this country and for the progressive movement isn't so incredibly important AOC, Ilhan Omar, and Rashida Tlaib, they were inspired by his candidacy, and they're some of the most powerful progressives that we now have in the House. Like Bernie Sanders and this movement has inspired so many people to get politically active in many different ways, whether it's running for office or going out and organizing. So uh, it's not the whole thing, but it is a very crucial like piece of this movement is you know, the spark that gets people like to even start thinking about me being mobilized and then to get mobilized and then, you know, maybe join like a labor union from that. Um, so while we don't have the labor movement attached yet, we are going in the right direction with the energy from the Bernie Sanders presidency. We just need to keep our heads on straight and not eat ourselves from within on the left here. We need to come together. Now that Bernie Sanders is out, there isn't, there isn't one like, coalescing leader which i like you know i don't want the movement to just be like placed on the shoulders of one person um but there is a little bit of like where do we go from here and different groups are trying to figure things out um i feel like that's to be that's to be expected everything that's happening with the black lives matter movement right now i think is a really good way for different groups to come together they're not leading it as the media would like you to think but anarchists are part of the black lives matter movement 
you see DSA, you see um, is doing, is showing up, you know, so it's not, we need every single group on the left to show up. We need the labor parties or the labor unions. We need DSA. We need BLM. We need the communists. We need the anti-fascists. We might not think the same on every single like issue, but we have the same guiding moral compass and that is people over profits and basic human decency for everyone. So these electoral mobilizations are certainly important because they share a similarity with activated labor movements. They impose some degree of costs on elites who refuse to listen. In an era like ours, in which the labor movement is so weak and demoralized, a radical and highly energetic electoral mobilization can have the effect of catalyzing the labor movement itself. By bringing so many people out into politics, by energizing the population around progressive issues, it can help reverse the sense of isolation and demoralization within labor. Unions can feel that they have the public standing with them, demanding the same sorts of things that progressive unions have long been fighting for. And in this changed political culture, bosses might be more willing to negotiate, or at a minimum, less inclined to take a very hard line. This is especially the case in the service sector, in which employers have traditionally stoked public opinion to make the unions appear as narrow special interests, looking out for themselves at the public expense. Think of teachers, transportation workers, postal workers, and so on. But when the public itself begins to demand, say, more funding for schools or better trains, etc., the task of challenging the employer seems less daunting to unions. Hence, even though the road to progressive reforms goes through the House of Labor, it doesn't have to start there. I think if anyone has been a part of this movement, even if you've only dipped your toe in the movement in the last five years, in the last 10 years, you feel this. The energies that go into organizing the working class can be acquired from other movements and other sources. The main point is that these movements need to be broad and ambitious, inclusive and capable of challenging the basic distribution of power and resources. I'm just going to read that again because I think that this is so important. And as we live in a time of like cancel culture and like the woke Olympics and stuff like that, and everyone like you put one, you say one wrong thing and people just jump on you and you feel as though you can't like even speak on a certain issue without getting it horribly wrong. Like that is a, that's a toxic culture. That's a toxic political culture that allows it or that makes it really difficult for the left to have like a comfortable space to work through these issues together. And part of this too is because we've, we live in such bubbles that we've, we've separated ourselves on the left so much from the Republican party. We don't associate with them. So our, our energy is going towards picking apart our own coalition here on the left, because that's who we associate and that's who we like even look at. It's not, our energies don't so much go towards like fighting the Republicans. They're kind of going towards fighting ourselves. So the energies that go into organizing the working class can be acquired from other movements and other sources. The main point is that these movements need to be broad and ambitious, inclusive and capable of challenging the basic distribution of power and resources. They need to be focused on the centers of power and audacious. This is what many of the recent explosions around the world have in common. Occupy Wall Street, the Arab Spring, the Bernie Sanders campaign, the mobilization for Corbyn, to name the most well-known. None of them were based in labor, yet all of them were significant in moving the political culture, raising morale and political ambition, and all of them have in some way enlivened parts of the labor movement. This isn't even an old essay, but we can also add in the Black Lives Matter movement and defunding the police. Right now, you know, these weren't started in labor, but labor has become a, a part of these movements. And even though they weren't started in labor, like you see, there is a cultural shift now. You have, they're talking about defunding the police on CNN. I mean, we've, people in progressive circles have been talking about defunding the police and abolishing prisons since they their inception. So it's not anything new for for people who are active, but for the mainstream to be talking about defunding the police, that's huge. You know, that's such a 
that's a huge win for the Black Lives Matter movement. It's, it's the same victory you have with, you know, Bernie Sanders pushing the Overton window on Medicare for all. They have contributed to a sense around the world that perhaps the long dark night of neoliberalism might be drawing to a close. And maybe it is, but how far we are able to press this will depend in the end on how much power we can muster against the state and the class of investors who stand behind it. This is the subject of the next pamphlet in the series. All right, y'all, that wraps it up. Um, the next pamphlet in the series is Capitalism and the Class Struggle. So it's the one I've been most excited for. Not that I haven't been excited for the other two, but the class struggle is real and it's something that I've felt. And 40 pages of just diving into how capitalism thrives on that class struggle, how capitalism needs the class struggle. You know, capitalism needs unemployment. Capitalism needs people to live in poverty. Capitalism needs people to live in debts. You know, it it thrives off of all of these things that make our lives hard and taxing. So I think it's going to be really interesting to dive into that and create like a better picture of how much capitalism really does you know cause the class struggle so i hope that you guys found number two interesting i would definitely give the pamphlet even if you don't read the pamphlet look it over because there are a couple of like charts and graphs in there that are it would just take too long for me to like break them all down and explain but they're really nice to look at they give you a kind of like a clearer picture of how wealthy people like vote on certain issues compared to poorer people and, and things like that. So definitely check out the pamphlet. You can find the ABCs of capitalism and all of these pamphlets on the jacobin.com. Um, and this one was, all of these pamphlets are written by Vivek Chipper. Um, and they're really great. So check those out, download them, maybe even read capitalism and the class struggle before next week's episode. And if you have any questions, I don't know, maybe I should open up I could open up Twitter DMs or something like that, but probably getting ahead of myself. Anywho, um, enjoy the rest of your day and look forward to Capitalism and the Class Struggle. That's going to be dropping next week, Tuesday, and check out the weekly news that's going to be uploaded on Friday morning. Big thanks to my editor and sound woman extraordinaire, Alyssa Rodriguez, and that's going to be all for today, y'all. Have a good one.